Part one of chapter three of book two of the wealth of nations. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith. Part one of chapter three of book two. Of the accumulation of capital or of productive and unproductive labor. There is one sort of labor which adds to the value of the subject upon which it is bestowed. There is another which has no such effect. The former, as it produces a value, may be called productive. The latter, unproductive labor. Thus the labor of a manufacturer adds generally to the value of the materials which he works upon, that of his own maintenance, and of his master's profit. The labor of a menial servant, on the contrary, adds to the value of nothing. Though the manufacturer has his wages advanced to him by his master, he in reality costs him no expense, the value of those wages being generally restored, together with the profit, in the improved value of the subject upon which his labor is bestowed. But the maintenance of a menial servant never is restored. A man grows rich by employing a multitude of manufacturers. He grows poor by maintaining a multitude of menial servants. The labor of the latter, however, has its value and deserves its reward as well as that of the former. But the labor of the manufacturer fixes and realizes itself in some particular subject or vendable commodity, which lasts for some time at least after that labor is passed. It is, as it were, a certain quantity of labor stocked and stored up to be employed if necessary upon some other occasion. That subject, or, what is the same thing, the price of that subject, can afterwards, if necessary, put into motion a quantity of labor equal to that which had originally produced it. The labor of the menial servant, on the contrary, does not fix or realize itself in any particular subject or vendable commodity. His services generally perish in the very instant of their performance, and seldom leave any trace of value behind them, for which an equal quantity of service could afterwards be procured. The labor of some of the most respectable orders in the society is, like that of menial servants, unproductive of any value, and does not fix or realize itself in any permanent subject or vendable commodity, which endures after that labor is passed, and for which an equal quantity of labor could afterwards be procured. The sovereign, for example, with all the officers both of justice and war who serve under him, the whole army and navy, are unproductive laborers. They are the servants of the public, and are maintained by a part of the annual produce of the industry of other people. Their service, how honorable, how useful, or how necessary soever, produces nothing for which an equal quantity of service can afterwards be procured. The protection, security, and defense of the commonwealth, the effect of their labor this year, will not purchase its protection, security, and defense for the year to come. In the same class must be ranked some both of the gravest and most important, and some of the most frivolous professions, churchmen, lawyers, physicians, men of letters of all kinds, players, buffoons, musicians, opera singers, opera dancers, etc. The labor of the meanest of these has a certain value, regulated by the very same principles which regulate that of every other sort of labor and that of the noblest and most useful produces nothing which could afterwards purchase or procure an equal quantity of labor. Like the declamation of the actor, the harangue of the orator, or the tune of the musician, the work of all of them perishes in the very instant of its production. Both productive and unproductive laborers, and those who do not labor at all, are all equally maintained by the annual produce of the land and labor of the country. 
This produce, how great soever, can never be infinite, but must have certain limits. According, therefore, as a smaller or greater proportion of it is in any one year employed in maintaining unproductive hands, the more in the one case and the less in the other will remain for the productive, and the next year's produce will be greater or smaller accordingly. The whole annual produce, if we accept the spontaneous productions of the earth, being the effect of productive labor. Though the whole annual produce of the land and labor of every country is no doubt ultimately destined for supplying the consumption of its inhabitants, and for procuring a revenue to them, yet when it first comes either from the ground or from the hands of the productive laborers, it naturally divides itself into two parts. One of them, and frequently the largest, is, in the first place, destined for replacing a capital, or for renewing the provisions, materials, and finished work, which had been withdrawn from a capital. The other, for constituting a revenue either to the owner of this capital, as the profit of his stock, or to some other person, as the rent of his land. Thus, of the produce of land, one part replaces the capital of the farmer, the other pays his profit and the rent of the landlord, and thus constitutes a revenue both to the owner of this capital, as the profits of his stock, and to some other person as the rent of his land. Of the produce of a great manufactory, in the same manner, one part, and that always the largest, replaces the capital of the undertaker of the work, the other pays his profit, and thus constitutes a revenue to the owner of this capital. That part of the annual produce of the land and labor of any country which replaces a capital never is immediately employed to maintain any but productive hands. It pays the wages of productive labor only. That which is immediately destined for constituting a revenue, either as profit or as rent, may maintain indifferently either productive or unproductive hands. Whatever part of his stock a man employs as a capital, he always expects it to be replaced to him with a profit. He employs it, therefore, in maintaining productive hands only, and after having served in the function of capital to him, it constitutes a revenue to them. Whenever he employs any part of it in maintaining unproductive hands of any kind, that part is from that moment withdrawn from his capital and placed in his stock reserved for immediate consumption. Unproductive laborers, and those who do not labor at all, are all maintained by revenue, either first by that part of the annual produce which is originally designed for constituting a revenue to some particular persons, either as the rent of land or as the profits of stock, or, secondly, by that part which, though originally destined for replacing a capital and for maintaining productive laborers only, yet when it comes into their hands, whatever part of it is over and above their necessary subsistence, may be employed in maintaining indifferently either productive or unproductive hands. Thus, not only the great landlord or the rich merchant, but even the common workman, if his wages are considerable, may maintain a menial servant or he may sometimes go to a play or a puppet show, and so contribute his share towards maintaining one set of unproductive laborers, or he may pay some taxes, and thus help to maintain another set, more honorable and useful indeed, but equally unproductive. No part of the annual produce, however, which had been originally destined to replace a capital, is ever directed towards maintaining unproductive hands, till after it has put into motion its full complement of productive labor, or all that it could put into motion in the way in which it was employed. The workman must have earned his wages by work done before he can employ any part of them in this manner. That part, too, is generally but a small one. It is his spare revenue only, of which productive laborers have seldom a great deal. 
they generally have some however and in the payment of taxes the greatness of their number may compensate in some measure the smallness of their contribution the rent of land and the profits of stock are everywhere therefore the principal sources from which unproductive hands derive their subsistence these are the two sorts of revenue of which the owners have generally most to spare they might maintain indifferently either productive or unproductive hands they seem however to have some predilection for the latter the expense of a great lord feeds generally more idle than industrious people the rich merchant though with his capital he maintains industrious people only yet by his expense that is by the employment of his revenue he feeds commonly the very same sort as the great lord the proportion therefore between the productive and unproductive hands depends very much in every country upon the proportion between that part of the annual produce which as soon as it comes either from the ground or from the hands of the productive labourers is destined for replacing a capital and that which is destined for constituting a revenue either as rent or as profit the proportion is very different in rich from what it is in poor countries thus at present in the opulent countries of europe a very large frequently the largest portion of the produce of the land is destined for replacing the capital of the rich and independent farmer the other for paying his profits and the rent of the landlord but anciently during the prevalency of the feudal government a very small portion of the produce was sufficient to replace the capital employed in cultivation it consisted commonly in a few wretched cattle maintained altogether by the spontaneous produce of uncultivated land and which might therefore be considered as a part of that spontaneous produce it generally too belonged to the landlord and was by him advanced to the occupiers of the land all the rest of the produce properly belonged to him too either as rent for his land or as profit upon this paltry capital the occupiers of land were generally bondmen whose persons and effects were equally his property those who were not bondmen were tenants at will and though the rent which they paid was often nominally little more than a quit rent it really amounted to the whole produce of the land their lord could at all times command their labour in peace and their service in war though they lived at a distance from his house they were equally dependent upon him as his retainers who lived in it but the whole produce of the land undoubtedly belongs to him who can dispose of the labour and service of all those whom it maintains in the present state of europe the share of the landlord seldom exceeds a third sometimes not a fourth part of the whole produce of the land the rent of land however in all the improved parts of the country has been tripled and quadrupled since those ancient times and this third or fourth part of the annual produce is it seems three or four times greater than the whole had been before in the progress of improvement rent though it increases in proportion to the extent diminishes in proportion to the produce of the land in the opulent countries of europe great capitals are at present employed in trade and manufactures in the ancient state the little trade that was stirring and the few homely and coarse manufactures that were carried on required but very small capitals these however must have yielded very large profits the rate of interest was nowhere less than ten per cent and their profits must have been sufficient to afford this great interest at present the rate of interest in the improved parts of europe is nowhere higher than six per cent and in some of the most improved it is so low as four three and two per cent though that part of the revenue of the inhabitants which is derived from the profits of stock is always much greater in rich than in poor countries it is because the stock is much greater 
in proportion to the stock the profits are generally much less that part of the annual produce therefore which as soon as it comes either from the ground or from the hands of the productive labours is destined for replacing the capital is not only much greater in rich than in poor countries but bears a much greater proportion to that which is immediately destined for constituting a revenue either as rent or as profit the funds destined for the maintenance of productive labour are not only much greater in the former than in the latter but bear a much greater proportion to those which though they may be employed to maintain either productive or unproductive hands have generally a predilection for the latter the proportion between those different funds necessarily determines in every country the general character of the inhabitants as to industry or idleness we are more industrious than our forefathers because in the present times the funds destined for the maintenance of industry are much greater in proportion to those which are likely to be employed in the maintenance of idleness than they were two or three centuries ago our ancestors were idle for want of a sufficient encouragement to industry it is better says the proverb to play for nothing than to work for nothing in mercantile and manufacturing towns where the inferior ranks of people are chiefly maintained by the employment of capital they are in general industrious sober and thriving as in many english and in most dutch towns in those towns which are principally supported by the constant or occasional residence of a court and in which the inferior ranks of people are chiefly maintained by the spending of revenue they are in general idle dissolute and poor as at rome versailles Compagne, and Fontainebleau. If you except Raoun and Bordeaux, there is little trade or industry in any of the Parliament towns of France, and the inferior ranks of people, being chiefly maintained by the expense of the members of the courts of justice, and of those who come to plead before them, are in general idle and poor. The great trade of Raoun and Bordeaux seems to be altogether the effect of their situation. Raoun is necessarily the entrepot of almost all the goods which are brought either from foreign countries or from the maritime provinces of france for the consumption of the great city of paris bordeaux is in the same manner the entrepot of the wines which grow upon the banks of the garonne and of the rivers which run into it one of the richest wine countries in the world and which seems to produce the wine fittest for exportation or best suited to the taste of foreign nations such advantageous situations necessarily attract a great capital by the great employment which they afford it and the employment of this capital is the cause of the industry of those two cities in the other parliament towns of france very little more capital seems to be employed than what is necessary for supplying their own consumption that is little more than the smallest capital which can be employed in them the same thing may be said of paris madrid and vienna of those three cities paris is by far the most industrious but paris itself is the principal market of all the manufacturers established at paris and its own consumption is the principal object of all the trade which it carries on london lisbon and copenhagen are perhaps the only three cities in europe which are both the constant residence of a court and can at the same time be considered as trading cities or as cities which trade not only for their own consumption but for that of other cities and countries the situation of all the three is extremely advantageous and naturally fits them to be the entrepots of a great part of the goods destined for the consumption of distant places in a city where a great revenue is spent to employ with advantage a capital for any other purpose than for supplying the consumption of that city is probably more difficult than in one in which the inferior ranks of people have no other maintenance but what they derive from the employment of such a capital 
the idleness of the greater part the situation of all the three is extremely advantageous and naturally fits them to be the entrepots of a great part of the goods destined for the consumption of distant places in a city where a great revenue is spent to employ with advantage a capital for any other purpose than for supplying the consumption of that city is probably more difficult than in one in which the inferior ranks of people have no other maintenance but what they derive from the employment of such a capital the idleness of the greater part of the people who are maintained by the expense of revenue corrupts it is probable the industry of those who ought to be maintained by the employment of capital and renders it less advantageous to employ a capital there than in other places there was little trade or industry in edinburgh before the union when the Scotch Parliament was no longer to be assembled in it, when it ceased to be the necessary residence of the principal nobility and gentry of Scotland, it became a city of some trade and industry. It still continues, however, to be the residence of the principal courts of justice in Scotland, of the boards of customs and excise, etc. A considerable revenue, therefore, still continues to be spent in it. In trade and industry, it is much inferior to Glasgow of which the inhabitants are chiefly maintained by the employment of capital the inhabitants of a large village it has sometimes been observed after having made considerable progress in manufactures have become idle and poor in consequence of a great lord's having taken up residence in their neighbourhood the proportion between capital and revenue therefore seems everywhere to regulate the proportion between industry and idleness wherever capital predominates industry prevails wherever revenue idleness every increase or diminution of capital therefore naturally tends to increase or diminish the real quantity of industry the number of productive hands and consequently the exchangeable value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country the real wealth and revenue of all its inhabitants capitals are increased by parsimony and diminished by prodigality and misconduct whatever a person saves from his revenue he adds to his capital and either employs it himself in maintaining an additional number of productive hands or enables some other person to do so by lending it to him for an interest that is for a share of the profits as the capital of an individual can be increased only by what he saves from his annual revenue or his annual gains so the capital of a society which is the same with that of all the individuals who compose it, can be increased only in the same manner. Parsimony, and not industry, is the immediate cause of the increase of capital. Industry, indeed, provides the subject which parsimony accumulates. But whatever industry might acquire, if parsimony did not save and store up, the capital would never be the greater. Parsimony, by increasing the fund which is destined for the maintenance of productive hands, tends to increase the number of those hands whose labor adds to the value of the subject upon which it is bestowed. It tends, therefore, to increase the exchangeable value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country. It puts into motion an additional quantity of industry which gives an additional value to the annual produce. What is annually saved is as regularly consumed as what is annually spent and nearly in the same time too but it is consumed by a different set of people that portion of his revenue which a rich man annually spends is in most cases consumed by idle guests and menial servants who leave nothing behind them in return for their consumption that portion which he annually saves as for the sake of the profit it is immediately employed as a capital is consumed in the same manner and nearly in the same time too but by a different set of people 
by laborers, manufacturers, and artificers who reproduce with a profit the value of their annual consumption. His revenue, we shall suppose, is paid him in money. Had he spent the whole, the food, clothing, and lodging, which the whole could have purchased, would have been distributed among the former set of people. By saving a part of it, as that part is, for the sake of the profit, immediately employed as a capital, either by himself or by some other person, the food, clothing, and lodging, which may be purchased with it, are necessarily reserved for the latter. The consumption is the same, but the consumers are different. By what a frugal man annually saves, he not only affords maintenance to an additional number of productive hands, for that of the ensuing year, but like the founder of a public workhouse, he establishes, as it were, a perpetual fund for the maintenance of an equal number in all times to come. The perpetual allotment and destination of this fund, indeed, is not always guarded by any positive law, by any trust right or deed of mortmain. It is always guarded, however, by a very powerful principle, the plain and evident interest of every individual to whom any share of it shall ever belong. No part of it can ever afterwards be employed to maintain any but productive hands, without an evident loss to the person who thus perverts it from its proper destination. The prodigal perverts it in this manner. By not confining his expense with his income, he encroaches upon his capital. Like him who perverts the revenues of some pious foundation to profane purposes, he pays the wages of idleness with those funds which the frugality of his forefathers had, as it were, consecrated to the maintenance of industry. By diminishing the funds destined for the employment of productive labor, he necessarily diminishes, so far as it depends upon him, the quantity of that labor which adds a value to the subject upon which it is bestowed, and, consequently, the value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the whole country, the real wealth and revenue of its inhabitants. If the prodigality of some were not compensated by the frugality of others, the conduct of every prodigal, by feeding the idle with the bread of the industrious, would tend not only to beggar himself, but to impoverish his country. Though the expense of the prodigal should be altogether in home made, and in no part of it in foreign commodities, its effect upon the productive funds of the society would still be the same. Every year there would still be a certain quantity of food and clothing which ought to have maintained productive, employed in maintaining unproductive hands. Every year, therefore, there would still be some diminution in what would otherwise have been the value of the annual produce of the land and labor of the country. This expense, it may be said, indeed, not being in foreign goods, and not occasioning any exportation of gold and silver, the same quantity of money would remain in the country as before. But if the quantity of food and clothing which were thus consumed by unproductive had been distributed among productive hands, they would have reproduced together with a profit the full value of their consumption. The same quantity of money would, in this case, equally have remained in the country, and there would, besides, have been a reproduction of an equal value of consumable goods. There would have been two values instead of one. End of Book 2, Chapter 3, Part 1